Welcome back to the Comics Course, Miskatonic University's remote education offering of Literature 209, which is Graphical Literature and Society and History, better known as the Comics Course. I am, as always, your lecturer, Professor Hamby. Um, they're supposed to meet again this spring about my thesis. We'll see. Uh, I am fortunate enough that I have six of the seven of them actually surviving since the last gathering review of my thesis. As always, with me is my ever-diligent TA, Rowan. Say hello, Rowan. Hello. So, um, is your soul attached to your body or slowly withering due to bureaucratic mania like mine is? Second one. Okay, fair enough. So, today, we are here to talk about Reginald Hudlin's Black Panther. It's a little appropriate, we're actually running a little bit late, of recording this on Monday instead of Sunday, because today is Martin Luther King Jr. Day, of course. Um, the day in which we, as Americans, gather together to remember one of the most important figures of the 20th century, which our police force helped assassinate. Um, and routinely repress the rights of. Yay, us! Yeah. 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 Um, I'm not saying we shouldn't talk about Martin Luther King Jr. and his life, certainly. I'm not trying to be dismissive of that. But it is fascinating to me that we talk about him as a figure of nonviolence, which I think is important and is actually going to come up in today's comics. Um, and we don't talk about how we, culturally, our response to this was violence. Um, you know, we talk about how Martin Luther King helped change America, but we don't spend a whole lot of time talking about why it needed to be changed and how much change there is still to do. You know, they like to talk about it in the past. Well, this guy named Martin came along, and everybody then sang Kumbaya together, and then there were Coca-Cola commercials with bottles being passed around to polar bears, and obviously the work is done. And it's like, that's not how it fucking works, folks. It's just not. <laughs> we're going to be working on this for a long, long time to come. Um, and part of why I'm talking about this, and if I sound kind of dark and sardonic about it, is this is where we're reaching at this point in the Black Panther run by Reginald Hudlin. Now, I talked a lot last time about how in Reginald Hudlin's Black Panther, in many ways, we got this sort of nicer, more socially accepted Black Panther, which was kind of necessary for large public consumption. I mean, people would not have bought Captain America in the Marvel Cinematic Universe movies if he had been super taciturn. His ability to, you know... Uh, quip the occasional joke, like when Natasha Romanoff asked him at the beginning of Winter Soldier, you know, if he has plans for Saturday night, and he says, well, all my barbershop quartet is dead. Um, <laughs> you know, we, we like to have some humanity in characters. And Hudlin largely stayed away from issues of racial politics, uh, and in fact, politics in general, in the first set of his collected works on Black Panther, but we're now going to get into that. You simply cannot write a character as iconic as the Black Panther, as iconic to people of the African diaspora who read superhero comics and not get into race when you write about him. So as we jump in, basically T'Challa and Aurora are enjoying their honeymoon, the very end of the honeymoon. She's bathing in a bikini. He's bathing in swim trunks. They're both catching some sun. He's reading a super technical manual that involves a bunch of math. 
Um, and she's saying, you know, it's been really nice that we've spent two weeks and not had to have a fight about anything. And basically says, well, I mean, we're on a honeymoon. We shouldn't be. She's like, no, I'm talking about other things. We haven't been attacked by Hydra. We haven't. <laughs> we've actually had two weeks to chill. And it turns out they're on an uncharted island with sea monsters guarding it, provided by Namor to give them a quiet honeymoon. What in Jurassic Park? You you don't recognize the whale? No. He was from that short-lived, you know, everybody talks about Amazing Adventures number 16 and how it introduced Spider-Man. Nobody talks about issue 15 where it introduced Whale Boy. I mean, he said, don't call me Moby. I'm just the dick. (laughs) Uh, it's an unpleasant view i'll give him that you you don't know what to say to that do you no all right world tour baby holiday in latveria latvria so at the end of their wedding they were approached by sent a message by doom who basically invites them to latveria now, we see back at the Department of State, Ross is getting interrogated, and Ross is like, I don't know what they're going to do. Well, they do, in fact, end up in Latvia, which, for those who do not know, is the small European kingdom that's controlled completely by Victor Von Doom. He is the king and the sole authority of the country, and it's kind of made to be like this medieval German-esque city. It's basically Mondstadt from Genshin Impact. Oh. Yeah. If you want to think about style and all that. And basically, he talks to them, and he talks to Aurora and T'Challa about the Marvel Civil War. Now, we talked about this very briefly in relationship to the wedding, but here's what happened. So, in the Slovakia Accords in the Marvel Cinematic Universe, this was based roughly on the comic Civil War. The comic Civil War was a little bit different from the Slovakia Accords of the movies, though. In Civil War, what they said was, people with superpowers are dangerous. And this wasn't specific to mutants, although mutants certainly were uh, a part of it because there have been many attempts to register mutants in the past. But they said, we're not going to make this a racial thing. Anybody with superpowers has to register as an agent of the government. Now, this caused a lot of conflict. Spider-Man at first came out in support of it. Then he bailed. Reed Richards was highly supportive of it. And then his creation, because he, for some reason, thought it would be a good idea to create a clone of Thor that he could mentally control and give armament to to duplicate Thor's weaponry. This ended up killing uh, Goliath, a scientist who acted as a sometime superhero without any reasonable cause because he was an uncontrollable machine. Over the course of things, eventually Captain America surrendered. It really was a, a fight, as they mirrored in the movies, between Captain America's ideology and Iron Man's. Now, Tony Stark was at this point the Secretary of Defense of the United States. And a lot of people began being very concerned in this storyline explored in Black Panther Wait a minute, if the U.S. government is making a register of all their superpowered people, and they'd already seen several registries of supervillains come out working for the government in secret, 
they said, isn't this basically the building blocks of a super army? Isn't this an arms race? Do other countries need to be prepared for military actions on a superpowered level? And so this was seen as aggressive. And this is not a storyline that was being explored in the main Civil War books, but of course, most of the superheroes involved in the Civil War storyline aren't kings of their own nations, the way T'Challa is. So they discuss this with Doom, and basically their conclusion is, we don't trust you, so we're not going to be your allies. You're, you have a lot of legitimacy in what you're saying, but we don't trust you. So Doom takes offense at this, tries to attack. There's a whole bunch of fighting that happens. And, of course, T'Challa and Storm get away. No surprise there. So the next stop on their world tour is to go to the moon. What? Whoa, 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 whoa. What? He designed a space suit just to have a Black Panther head on it? Yes. Well, I mean, it's a ceremonial garb. What do you want him to do? Be Space Boy? No, he's the Black Panther. The Black Space Man? That seems kind of racist. Don't be racist. I'm not. I mean, he's the Black Panther. Let him put a damn kitty on his helmet. He, he can wear kitty ears through Harajuku, too, if he wants to. Because he could beat the shit out of me. I wouldn't say shit to his face. I just can't believe you're making fun of, like, you know, a cat-shaped space helmet now. Like, all the other shit you could be making fun of, and the fact that, you know, he put a cat face on his helmet is... You know, what you're going to pick on? Holy shit, have you, are you in for a ride if you thought that's weird? <laughs> All right. So, we just kind of keep going. We just go and go and go. The short version, if you've never heard of the Inhumans, they live in the blue area of the moon. They're not technically mutants. They use Terrigen Mist to release somebody's inner genetic potential. I know it sounds a lot like triggering mutations, doesn't it? And it turns out that, of course, Quicksilver, who is the ex-husband of one of the princesses of the Inhumans, has stolen the crystals for the U.S. government. And so the Inhumans are considering declaring war on humanity. All of us? Well, they kind of consider everybody the same. U.S. government, Russia, China, they're kind of all the same to the Inhumans. <laughs> right. So as this storyline progresses, everybody thinks things are great, but then Black Panther discovers that some of the inhuman royal family have been disobeying orders and breeding a slave race under their city to serve them. What? Right. So, you know, this is just not going well all over. Basic as this is the slave race of people here, who oh. Black Bolt discovers it was being done without his knowledge. Black Bolt is their king. By the way, you notice they don't show Black Bolt speaking. Um, for those not familiar with the human's mythology, Black Bolt is considered possible one of the most powerful super beings on in the vicinity of Earth. Mm -hmm. um, but his voice is so powerful that if he were even just to utter one tiny syllable, he could destroy an entire city. So he never talks. So man pretends to be mute. Well, no, everybody knows that he can talk. Right. Practically mute. So he, others often have to speak for him, and things get lost in translation, and it's frustrating for him. Anyway, so we visited Doom, who's a potential ally, 
but they can't trust him. They go to see the Inhumans, and some of them are still breeding slave races because they don't think any race but the Inhumans matter. So now let's go visit Namor of Atlantis. And Namor is trying to be super chummy with him, like, hey, welcome, are you hungry? I got the freshest sushi. Anyway, it's another political jaunt, and Namor tries to sell T'Challa on the idea that there will be an alliance of superpowers to oppose the U.S. and oppose the U.S. Uh, Superhuman Registration Act because they don't want this to turn into a global military conflict of supers. And it's a reasonable response of what would happen. Now, during the course of this, Namor shares when he actually met T'Chaka, or, uh, sorry, Azari the Wise, way back in World War II. Which is his great-grandfather, right? It is T'Challa's grandfather. Azari the Wise was his grandfather. T'Chaka is his father. Um, And basically, by the end of this, a variety of things are thrown back and forth, including uh, Aurora saying... Is this really about Sue Storm? We know you're obsessed with her. We know you simp hard for her. If they've never actually used the word simp to describe Namor in a Marvel comic for Sue Storm, they really should. The word was made for him. I mean, he he yells all imperious Rex and I'll smash tanks. And then she walks by and he's like, ma'am, can I lay down so you can walk on me? I'll lick your boot as you pass my face, I promise. I mean, he's got it bad. I mean, it's bad. Yeah, Imperius, Imperius, something else. Um, So, oh, and by the way, in the course of things, Sue Storm sided with Captain America, Reed Richards, her husband, with Iron Man, and she spied for one side on the other, and things got weird, and that'll become relevant to this later. Um, But we're not there just yet. I am so confused already. I know. So one thing that we definitely saw with Reginald Hudlin was here a much tighter integration of Black Panther with the main Marvel Universe and with the characters happening. I mean, Hudlin understood the value of cross-marketing a character. He was so Batman in that page. Yeah, they've really made his outfit more and more Batman-esque. At least, but he doesn't have the utility belt. He just hides that stuff. Yeah. So as we enter... now. I know you don't know much about the history of the X-Men. We'll have to talk about the X-Men sometime. Mm -hmm. But the great symbol of hatred in the X-Men titles are giant robots called the Sentinels. They have an iconic appearance, and the Sentinels were created to hunt down and destroy mutants as a race. Mm -hmm. And they are the physical metaphor in Marvel Comics for racism. In fact, if you want to make a point that some group is being oppressed... You get a sentinel and reprogram it to kill that group instead. And it's like a hammer to the reader's face going, this is racism. Got it? So. So so they're there to be an obvious story beat that everyone understands. Right. And so as T'Challa and Aurora go to visit the U.S. president, they have three giant sentinels standing around the White House. Aurora, who is a mutant. No, they want to make it very clear that there is antagonism going on here. Now, they refuse to play along, and they decide to just leave. While all this is going on, 
African Americans are gathering in huge mass chanting, Panther, Panther, stop the fighting, stop the war. And some trampling starts to happen as people panic and a kid is in danger. So the Black Panther jumps the rails to go save the kid and people are beginning to freak out and the guards are starting to push in with riot gear on the black protesters who are protesting peacefully. Storm tries to calm things down by bringing down a lightning bolt in between the groups to make them both back off. That's so calming. Well, that's a side effect of her power. It does make them back off so they're not hitting each other. But she also brings down the rain, Mm -hmm. which kind of dampens things. Black Panther gets the child back to its parents. But now the Sentinels are like, a mutant's used their power. She's not registered. We're now going to apprehend and arrest her. And T'Challa claiming that she has diplomatic immunity isn't cutting it. And just all the fighting breaks out, of course, as it will. And by the time of it being done, we see the Black Panther return to his Black Panther armor. Is that Iron Man? That's Iron Man, who's shown up. And the Black Panther just uses the ebon blade he stole from the Black Knight to just cut Iron Man's armor in half. Holy shit. Yep. And eventually the fighting is quieted down by James Rhodey, who was piloting one of the Sentinels and realizes that he was on the wrong side here. But Tony Stark doesn't. He feels like it should continue to be pushed. Then, of course, we move the story on to seeing the body of Goliath dead in the ground, just covered in a tarp because they didn't know what else to do with somebody 80 foot tall. Kind of fair. Yep. T'Challa offers to return him for burial in Wakanda. And when they're like, well, but he's so big, he's like, we'll figure out how to do it. Don't worry. Meanwhile, all these suits are sitting around with Everett K. Ross trying to figure out how to take political advantage of this situation. And basically are so eager to find evidence of T'Challa, you know, siding against the U.S. so that they have reasons to attack, that the intelligence agencies are starting to make things up. Now, what this mirrors is something that actually happened in our country not that long ago. In fact, in the lifetime of many listeners. Um, for those who don't know about the Iraqi conflict, super, super, super short version was we initially attacked the sovereign nation of Iraq um, way back during the presidency of George Bush Sr. Now, George Bush Sr. had been a lifelong intelligence officer. He was a very smart man. And he concluded that even though we were defending the neighboring country of Kuwait, that we should not press in and actually take the nation of Iraq. He determined that it would be a quagmire, that would be a nightmare to try to leave, and we might very well make things worse rather than better. His son later became president, and reports have said that literally his first day as president, first day in the White House, he sat down at the Intelligence Council and said... What are our plans for invading Iraq? Because lots of people made fun of his dad for not invading Iraq. They called him a wimp. In fact, wimp became a big meme. Now, lots of people watched, you know, people like Dana Carvey making fun of him for being a wimp and stuff like that. I mean, of course, the funny memes are what travel. Meanwhile, he himself actually wrote an editorial for Newsweek and explained in depth 
why he wouldn't do it. And my analysis when I read that was he's absolutely correct. But of course, what people remember is Dana Carvey on Saturday Night Live impersonating him going, I'm not a wimp. You'll, you can reelect me. I swear I'm not a wimp. Don't make me be a one-term president. And is pathetic. Uh, uh, and, and an unfair treatment of the man. Um, who I think history remembers as a good moderate president. Now, his son, however, was determined to go prove his dad wasn't no fucking wimp. He was a goddamn American with a dick that shoots M16 bullets. Eat barbecue and shoot bullets out of my dick at the same time. I'm from Texas, goddammit, that's what we do. And uh, the family is from Texas. Um, so we invaded Iraq, and it was a fucking disaster. We're... we're it made a quagmire out of... Quagmire just begins to describe it. It is a mess. We were unprepared to deal with the political and social factions. And the justification for invading Iraq was that they had weapons of mass destruction. Now, after we invaded and took the country apart, we found out they had no weapons of mass destruction. The intelligence community was so eager to make their new boss happy, who was so insistent that we had to have a reason to invade, that they saw an opportunity to suck up to their new boss by faking information justifying an invasion, which is exactly what we're seeing happening in the pages of Black Panther here. And we still have problems with Iraq to this day. Right. Now, this is using comics, using popular entertainment, using mythology in a very effective way, which is you can take a fictional story and take real elements of history and blend them together. In fact, there are whole fields of literature and anthropology and history that look at old popular stories and can often use them for divining, sometimes not specifics, like exact years or things that think, exact years and exact people who did things. Um, but we can often pull out historical lessons from these old stories and sometimes religious principles and other things. So I, I, I find it interesting that Reginald Hudlin included this. I think somebody 400 years from now could read back on this and go, you know, I think there's a deeper meaning here. And if they went to scan our history, assuming it survives in 400 years, um, that, you know, they'll see what Hudlin was teaching people about. And this has that other purpose of it teaches people. A kid who reads this, absorbs this lesson that a bunch of old white guys will manufacture evidence to get people of color killed just because it might improve their chances of a promotion. And it teaches a real-world lesson through a fictional format. In this case, to be distrustful because a bunch of white guys probably don't care about you dying if you're not white. And that may sound harsh, but there are plenty of people who have really good reason to see it that way. Yeah. You can see it statistically when people go missing. Statistically, more resources are put into finding white people than people of color. Sure. So, storyline goes on. I do want to mention the art here as we're flipping through. I think the art was very good. Yeah, I like that. I do find it interesting they continue to often represent T'Challa outside of his ceremonial outfit without shoes to represent how he likes to jump and move around. Mm -hmm. And the shoes just kind of get in his way. And notice how they give him much more of a bodybuilder physique in a lot of ways than previous artists have. Others did him very sinewy, while this is a guy who clearly can bench press. Which I kind of like more. But it feels more realistic. 
but they haven't gone overboard. I mean, he's not so muscled that he can't move. Like there, there are bodybuilders who do competitions where they show off very cut muscles, where they actually build up specific subgroups of muscles in unhealthy ways because it's the most aesthetically pleasing thing for the competitions. But he's clearly an all-over athlete. And, I mean, they made sure to give Storm a bare midriff as much as they possibly could. Which, I mean, I appreciate. So, as things go on, you know, people are running the spin zone. They're trying to show how the Western media interpret the Black Panther's actions. And in the end of it, while he's sending them on goose chases with all these armored vehicles around New York, he just sneaks out via the tunnels. Now, of course, the black uh, 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 widow figures it out and intercepts him. So he just says, I don't have time for you, and lets the Dora Milaje kick her ass. <laughs> you look shocked. Okay. And she goes to shoot them, and her equipment doesn't work. Uh, meanwhile, T'Challa runs into Steve Rogers. They, of course, have an obligatory fight because superheroes should always have at least a brief fight when they first meet, <laughs> according to Marvel tradition. They then talk it out, and we see Black Widow back talking to Tony Stark, who has had her ass beat by the Dora Milaje. I mean, she's got a black eye. She's got swelling. Her arms broke. She's got cuts. Everything looks like it's swelling. Yep. And they're talking with the fake Thor on the slab who was cloned. He looks so fake. His hair doesn't look real. Right. So, I mean, ultimately, this is all, of course, coming down to a big showdown between the Black Panther and Tony Stark. So, I mean, oh, and by the way, we have U.S. Navy ships off, it says here, Meanwhile, five miles off the coast of Africa. Now, they've introduced these Navy ships that are potentially looking to invade Wakanda from Niganda. Now, they showed us where Wakanda was before. And they showed us in Reginald Hudlin's run just a few issues ago. It was right in the freaking center mm -hmm. of Africa. Now it's near the ocean. Right. Right off the ocean. Because... These are not, these are aircraft carriers. They show us, and there's like seven of them. These are not on a big lake in the middle of Africa. I, my, my true belief is when, the, when Black Panther writers send it off to a new person, they say, make sure to put Wakanda somewhere very different from where I put it. Got it, bud? Right. And they're saying five miles off the coast of Wakanda. So it implies that uh, Wakanda is now a coastal African nation. And they make references later to near Tunisia and the northern coast. Wakanda can never be in the same place. This is ridiculous. It's feckin' ridiculous. I'm annoyed by it. Whatever. <laughs> to just be accepted by now. So as the storyline goes on, of course you end up eventually with all-out conflict as the parties fight. And of course, Reed Richards, who does not learn his lessons... Reed Richards, the man who rolled a D&D &D character and somehow out of 3D6 rolled a 28 intelligence. But a one wisdom. I mean, seriously, the man wanted to investigate cosmic rays, so he's like, what I'm going to do is take my friend, the test pilot, me, the scientist, because scientists usually go up on test flights, my fiancé, 
who, at least in the original comics, was training to be a housewife. Not even science with him or anything, like in some of the Ultimates versions. And then her underage high school attending brother and strap us all up in an unshielded spacecraft and fly through the cosmic rays, and that'll be some goddamn science. Okay, folks. The guys on Mythbusters took more care in protecting themselves from firecrackers and plastic tubes than you did with a spacecraft and cosmic rays. It's true. Now, I, I'm going to talk. This is a moment for me to my grass eater brothers out there. I mean, I'm not a grass eater. But some of you are grass eaters, and we know that. Now, it's okay to be a grass eater so long as you look up at the sky and go, one day I want to reach for that sunlight. One day I want to reach out of here and find out what some meat tastes like. That's all right. I mean, you got, you got to grow, brothers. But if you read something like these comic books, and you can't. I, I'm not going to fault you for getting into them. Being like, oh my God, I want to know what happens next. No, that's cool. But if you can't laugh at yourself for the world of these comics, you're, you're never going to not be a grass eater. I'm just telling you. This is advice from me to you. I mean, the hounds are acting up, but that's all right. They probably just got a freshman. I mean, they usually get excited. The freshmen usually have a lot of coffee in them, and that keeps the hounds up all night. Um... So, yeah, the big showdown happens. Wakabi, of course, is around because, you know, Wakabi. it's Wakabi. He's trying to look out for people. They go to evacuate the Wakandan embassy, and the Thor clone proceeds to destroy the embassy. As you do. Which then leads Storm to going, I'm tired of yo punk ass. And Storm just starts throwing lightning at him faster than he can absorb it. And then Sue Storm shows up, and she's pissed. Sue Storm, the invisible woman. The the training to be a housewife girl who got, you know, zapped with cosmic rays and mm -hmm. turned to... Okay, we should do a history of Sue Storm some episode. Okay. Okay, so anyway, I'm going to mention at the end here, and then I'm going to talk about Sue Storm briefly, because I do tangents on my show. Um, Hercules, yes, the actual Greek demigod Hercules shows up. He's been a long-running member of the Avengers. Of course he is. Well, I mean... Thor has been, too. I mean, why not? They have things to do other than Star Oh, and they have established in Marvel lore, in case you didn't know this, that the Greek god Eros is actually an immortal member of the race of Titans, and he likes to come down to Earth and play Playboy. Play what? Playboy. Hang out. Hey, baby, you ever been with a god? Oh. Hey, baby, I can make you see the stars right now. I can fly you up there so you never forget. <laughs> I can take you to other no, worlds. <laughs> you had enough of that? Yep. Yep. Moving on. Okay. Well, I mean, th this is the guy that Namor goes to for pickup lines. I mean, I'm just saying if Namor walks up to you and goes, you like it fresh like sushi? Just turn around and go, dude, no, no, stay out of my DMs. <laughs> so Sue Storm, by the way, has an actually interesting history of a character because she was very much introduced as the simpering future housewife 
uh, and was known as the Invisible Girl. That was her ability to turn invisible. However, it was later established by writers, especially after it was pulled away from Stan Lee. Uh, Stan, Stan Lee had a lot of virtues as a writer, but writing strong female characters was not one of them. It just wasn't. But over time, it was established that Sue Storm um, actually creates her invisibility through force shields and can use them to create incredible diverse effects. Uh, And she's worked as a uh, special adjunct for S.H.I.E.L.D. as a spy quite a few times. So in this panel here, we watch Hercules taking apart the Thor clone. And we, the fun part is we get to watch it entirely from Sue and Aurora's reactions. So we don't get to see the actual fight. We just see, ooh, wow, nice hit. Wow. You know, oh, I mean, I know it's Hercules, but still, uh, I, I don't think he's going to need our assistance. On the, ooh. ooh. <laughs> I mean. <laughs> I love the reaction. Right. It was a well-composed page. Yeah. Um, and, you know, through this, we find instances where... Hudlin is really trying to write a real relationship. Uh, T'Challa and Storm, I've glossed over it, but they've had fights, you know, places where he got annoyed because she was helping a lot, places where she was flying him around and he felt a little emasculized by it. But then he bounces back in good humor. And when she's wrong, he gives her grief but doesn't yell at her. So there, there is this dynamic going back and forth of where they're both strong personalities and both kind of rub against each other wrong a few times, but also love each other a great deal. Uh, And one of the better written relationships in that regard in the history of Marvel Comics. And then we get to this race of aliens, which is gathering together to fight off invaders in their world, the Negative Zone. And they're having a great gathering to discuss how to stop the aliens. Unfortunately, then they get stepped on by one of the aliens. Because it turns out that they're like fruit fly size. And oh. the humans invading haven't even noticed them yet. Oh. Yeah, things to scale, man. Things to scale. It's rough. I feel like there's a metaphor in there. <laughs> it really is. And then, uh, in a echo of Christopher Priest's Black Panther, you know, they're like, well, how are we going to leave here? You know, there's a no-fly zone. The embassy's been destroyed. And T'Challa's like, don't worry. Over in the bay. I got a ship ready. Always do. Why is she surprised? Shadows of Christopher Priest's Black Panther there. Um, And a few times when he gets upset, he kind of pulls back into this taciturn silence, much like Christopher Priest's Black Panther. So I thought those were nice little touches on the writing part to try to maybe imply that even though Reginald Hudlin couldn't figure out how to make it work as a continuity lore-wise, he kind of wanted to play homage to Christopher Priest's Black Panther. So, from here on out, this gets a little silly at times, but we're going to zap through it and enjoy a couple of interesting moments, including the fact that Reed Richards and Susan Storm, Susan Storm Richards, um, have decided that they need to go work on their relationship by going to the moons of Saturn and going on vacation there. As you do. Right. So, they're like, hey... You know, that leaves the Thing and the Human Torch, who are a little juvenile at times. And if something happens that needs a Fantastic Four, how about T'Challa and Storm take our places on the Fantastic Four? So they do. Now, 
This also allows them to use the Baxter Building as temporary headquarters for the Wakandan Embassy and sends an interesting message, if you think about it, to the U.S. government that Reed Richards, who was the technical mastermind behind their hero registration program, is pulling out and leaving his building in the hands of one of the biggest opponents of it, T'Challa. Mm -hmm. So that's a real about-face there, isn't it? Mm -hmm. Meanwhile, we still have those ships. Now look at that. Those are full aircraft carriers. They are clearly on the ocean. And Shuri's friends are trying to talk her into doing something about taking out those ships because her brother, the king, is not, who's off in America doing stuff. Although T'Challa feels like he needs to be in America to deal with the consequences of this superpowered registration act. So all of this keeps going until one of those aliens somehow mutates to full size and leaves the negative zone and enters the Baxter building. And he becomes a big problem for the new Fantastic Four, including the Black Panther to solve. Now, we are today just talking about Reginald Hedlund's run. So we're going to ignore the T'Challa and Aurora stories with the Fantastic Four off in the all-new Fantastic Four title. So there is a gap where from the last issue of where that alien shows up to this one, several issues happened over in Fantastic Four. But I invite you to see what T'Challa is holding in his hand. Not again! They're back! Yes, he needed to teleport across time and space quickly, so he recruited the frogs, which have been held apparently in Wakanda for that time. And I'd like to point out, they, they keep calling them the grass frogs, but even this artist is drawing them as gold. So. Clearly gold, yes. So that is what T'Challa has done. Now, he only shows one frog here. I'm pretty sure he had two before in the storyline. But he had to use them to teleport. And he wasn't happy about it because he doesn't like magic. And the frogs are special creatures. They are. But then fights happen with this monster creature. And T'Challa shows up with uh, literally a big push cart full of sci-fi bazookas <laughs> and what? says, stand clear as his means of explanation. All you have to do is to point it, sir. <laughs> right. Which does not at all phase the creature uh, when he blasts with it, tries to encase it in hardened steel, doesn't work. Now, I invite you to look at the frog in T'Challa's hand here. Does it not look smug? It does, doesn't it? Like, it knows exactly what it's been doing since now, the start of the series. At this point, I do think perhaps I should... Let me find it real quickly. I think I should find for you the Fantastic Four appearance. Hold on. Watching me try to find something on the computer is always good entertainment, right? Well, that was my joke. Well, I'll just have more whiskey then. All right, it's loading up. So this was the new Fantastic Four, which for a few first few issues featured the Black Panther and Storm, as they had to deal with the Silver Surfer and all that crap. I'm not going to get a whole lot into the story. 
but it did involve Uatu the Watcher, uh, Ego's daughter, a living planet. Who's Ego? Uh, Ego the living planet was in Guardians of the Galaxy 2, but that will require its own history lesson. Okay. Suffice it to say that Ego had a daughter and it's a living planet also. No. No, I'm sorry, I'm thinking about that. Yeah. So, Galactus has shown up to eat the living planet. They don't want Galactus to eat it. When fighting Galactus, mm -hmm. um, what you generally do is run. You don't fight. Okay. It's just a bad idea. Uh, so, T'Challa has come back to Earth to get the stuff for his Galactus Protocols. Because he had a plan for defeating Galactus if it was ever a threat to Wakanda. Of course he does, because uh, he's, he's Marvel's Batman. Right. But he needs to get back in space quickly, so he resorts to using the Golden Frogs to do it. Why does he have so many of them? There's three there. No, there's only two. No, there's... He's holding one there, and then he adds the other one on top. Because oh, okay. otherwise he'd have three hands. No, pretty sure. He's a psychic, but he doesn't have three hands. Just saying. That's what he wants us to think. That's what he wants us to think. Right. So, the aftermath of all that, mm -hmm. where they have attempted to head home. Where is that other one? So now they're teleporting through time and space, trying to deal with this monster, using the frogs to teleport. And they end up on a planet of scrolls with Galactus zombies attacking where Spider-Man, Iron Man, Power Man, Wolverine, Hulk, and Giant Man have become absorbed the power, the cosmic energy of Galactus and her zombies. Whoopie-doo. So this is a crossover with the Marvel Zombies line, which of course takes place in one of the many universes. A variety of things happen, none of them good. Um, lots of zombie jokes, as you can imagine. Uh -huh. And eventually they figure out how to eat a planet. Meanwhile, T'Challa's like, I think it's time to GTFO. And I've got a golden frog to do it with. <laughs> Amazingly, some people are actually against this plan. Almost like because it's, the frogs have caused them nothing but trouble. Uh -huh. Like the time that they go to teleport away from the Galactus zombies attacking them, and are teleported like 20 feet behind him. Thanks, frogs. <laughs> fucking the dicks. The frogs know what they're doing. They're on purpose fucking with people, I swear. It does seem that way, doesn't it? Like, this is just their game they play. So, as the storyline goes on, suddenly we find the characters facing their deepest psychological fears. Because this weird psycho guy has captured them and is doing stuff to manipulate their minds. That's all right. Somebody puts a spear through him and it's all good. Actually, that's not true. But Storm does break free. Things get weird. Storm and T'Challa make out because why wouldn't you? I mean, they're still newlyweds. And then look at the frog. Oh, God. That guy has plans. And yep. none are good. Yep. They, they drew him with red eyes this time around. I know. It's kind of freaky, right? Like, the artists know these things are pure evil. So now they're teleported back to a world set in the 1930s, occupied by scrolls 
who decided to reenact their world as a gangster movie. Oh, well, he's got nothing better to do. Now, this had been visited long ago in the Fantastic Four in a storyline where Ben Grimm uh, basically helps a bunch of them start a revolution to overthrow, and he thought that he left them all in a good state, but it turns out that after he left, things kind of reverted. Back to how they were, with gangsters running arenas and, and making monsters fight each other. Mm-hmm. However, unlike in the first time, we now see black people in this world. Mm. Although, don't get ahead of yourself, they're scrolls also. Now, as this is going on, T'Challa looks at the frog and goes, we know you understand us. <laughs> and Storm goes, and we are tired of the games you are playing in this nonsense or we will destroy you. And the frog says, we'll see who is destroyed first. <laughs> the frog breaks his silence and then teleports them away. I knew it. I knew all the time. Right. So they end up in, you know, of course, conflict with the gangsters. And most of them are captured. Storm manages to fly away and manages to cross a line that the gangsters won't chase her over. And standing at the line are a bunch of black guys who are dressed like it's the 1970s, unlike the white guys who are dressed like it's the 1930s. And she finds out that after Ben Grimm's revolution, that a bunch of them started watching updated TV signals they were receiving from Earth and saw the racial conflict happening in America in the 60s and 70s, and a bunch of them who felt like they were the underdogs took on the appearance of black men and women to represent that social struggle of how equality needed to exist on their world, too. Okay. So we've got black scrolls, who I'm assuming are kind of like the black Irish, the oppressed people of their world. And we meet... Martin Luther King Jr. Hey, it's your day, man. And he introduces himself as, just call me Martin. And he looks like Martin Luther King Jr. Because he is. Because the scrolls don't find anything weird or creepy about looking at somebody on broadcast TV signals and going, I admire him, so I'm now going to be him. That's so much fucked up about that. Nothing weird about that at all, right? And while Storm is talking to Martin Luther King Jr., Malcolm X shows up. That's because of course he does. Now remember, Malcolm X uh, was the figure that was in the poster over Christopher Priest's desk at Marvel back when he was Jim Owsley, Uh and people were lying, I don't know about this. But of course, what it ends up being is that this revolution kind of takes Martin Luther King Jr. and Malcolm X. Malcolm X is heavy into... Uh, you know, this idea that you need a militia to protect people when the forces won't officially protect you anymore, while Martin Luther King Jr. is very much a proponent of nonviolence. Now, of course, the truth is, is that as they both were assassinated, and there's extremely good evidence to show that Malcolm X, uh, who many people traditionally considered to have been targeted by the Nation of Islam for his growing popularity, he had left the Nation of Islam. He'd been with it for a long time and left it. Um, there's actually very good evidence now to suggest that he was, in fact, assassinated by the police. Which makes a lot of sense. Right. Um, although there was good reason for the Nation of Islam to have potentially gone after him, too. He good had, reason. I'm not saying they did, but... He had so many targets on his back by the time he was... Right. 
But there is much evidence to suggest that his expanding worldview was now beginning to include the idea that maybe the extreme militarism, uh, militarism that he had gone down wasn't as effective. Martin Luther King Jr., actually, by the time he passed away, was beginning to see that maybe complete nonviolence wasn't the answer. They were both perhaps moving to a more moderate position in the center. Uh, and there's an interesting question about what would have happened if they had not been assassinated, uh, especially if they had chosen to work together, which is possible they would have. Now, there are a couple of interesting throwbacks here. I will mention that I didn't call them out when they happened exactly, but uh, one of the things that happened earlier in these issues is that Storm was reading the wedding present from her American grandparents, the autobiography of Malcolm X. Ah. Now, of course, this is a clear symbol to people. The symbol is very blatant, which is you should read the autobiography of Malcolm X. And as a literature professor, I can tell you it's true. You should. It's a fascinating piece of literature that has an absolute place in our cultural history. And I highly recommend it to everybody. In fact, I will put it on the reading list for this episode, the autobiography of Malcolm X. Um, although nowhere near as nuanced or detailed, there is a biography based on the autobiography of Malcolm X uh, by Spike Lee, starring Denzel Washington as Malcolm X. Uh it's a pale shadow of the book, but it is worth watching if you decide you don't have time to read the book. So, as things go on, Black Panther fights a actual werewolf. Now, I know you love werewolves, so I'm waiting for your ruling on the werewolf. He looks really cool. He does. He does get his ass kicked by T'Challa, because it's T'Challa's book. General rule of thumb, you usually are the one that kick ass when the book is named after you. Yeah, yeah. Um, and the story goes on. Basically, there's another revolution that happens. We do get a shot of Storm in a sort of 60s Black Panther kick ass outfit. It's actually a pretty neat piece of art. Yeah. Um, I do also kind of love them styling up the Black Panther logo in the background. Mm -hmm. Kind of be a little Thundercatsy. For those who remember the 80s cartoon series. I love wearing the dirty hair. Yep. Again, very classic sort of black is beautiful uh, mm -hmm. image without all the hair treatments and stuff. Mm -hmm. uh, by the way, it is also established that Storm is very vain about her hair mm -hmm. and gets very upset if people imply that she puts treatments in her hair. Her hair is that way naturally, thank you. Oh, okay. <laughs> and she will have words with you if you claim otherwise. She does not straighten her hair, bitches. Okay. <laughs> Now, as all this happens, they do eventually get off the planet. It turns out to be in their own dimension. So, so long as they can get a spacecraft, a scroll spacecraft, they can get back to Earth. Now, do you remember uh, that he was reading something super technical at the very beginning on the beach? It was about this. Well, they get into the plane, and Ben Grimm goes, What you think to Charlie? Looks pretty real. I've read reads manuals on scroll technology i should be able to pilot us home sounds like a great read at the beach actually yes it was because <laughs> he's fucking black Panther. right so of course he casually read a book on scroll so earlier the golden frogs had disappeared and now they're back and talking in stereo don't worry you won't be needing this craft you're going home to Earth, all right. And then they're teleported away. God damn frogs. 
Now, the frogs are having fun this issue. Now, for the remainder of this volume of Reginald Hudlin's Black Panther, uh, Volume Two, is going to be the story that he contributed to the Black Panther Annual for the wedding. So this is called Black to the Future. We have Uatu on the moon talking to one of the frogs. And the frog says, hey, I'm not trying to disrespect your abilities. I've been watching you as long as you've been watching me. I just wanted to know how you felt to see your prediction come true. So the frog is in the future. And in the future, we see a beautiful Wakanda. We see Shuri as the Black Panther. Uh, we see an older T'Challa who's retired from being the Black Panther and now has two, three sons, two daughters. And one of them is pouting because it's his brother's wedding day and his brother is getting married to the girl he likes. Yeah. Now, okay, I got another talk for you, grass eater motherfuckers. Okay. Now, the, rereading this, now, a, a couple months ago, an acquaintance of mine, an internet acquaintance, um, announced that she was getting married. I was like, yay, good for you, right? Mm -hmm. And she announces that she's lost a, an old friend over this. What? Now, I had to ask, why? Yeah. She says, so I've known this guy for years and years and years and years. Like, I don't know, five, eight years, something like that, right? Mm -hmm. He's hung out with me and my fiancé. We decide to get married, and he says, you never gave me a chance. I can't be around you anymore. I loved you and wanted you to marry me. And, and she says, now, she's hung out with him as a friend for like over half a decade. He's never asked her on a date, never expressed romantic interest until she gets engaged, and then is like, I can't deal with this. That is mind game bullshit, people. That now look, I, I understand the nervousness. I'm not saying every guy has to go out there and be like, Look, my balls are made out of pure carbon steel. I'll throw them on the table. I'll ask any bitch out. No, that's, that's not a healthy attitude. Don't be like that. But if you stand around and you're like, I, 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 I'm really into her. I really want to ask her out. But, you know, it'll just hurt too much if I'm rejected. And yet, yeah, yeah, look, bro, that happens to all of us. Mm -hmm. All of us. And all of us miss a shot. But if you do this over and over and over and over again... And then get mad when she gets married. That's bullshit. You need to man your shit up and be nice about it. Because, look, I'm sorry you missed your shot, say, once a week for five years, 260-some times. I'm just saying that's pretty shitty averages. You need to take a shot, man. She doesn't owe you a chance. Right. Right, she doesn't owe you anything. He, he said that, he, you know, things about that. Like, you owe me. No, she doesn't owe you anything. She owed you polite consideration if you'd asked, but you never did. Mm -hmm. And polite consideration doesn't mean she'd have to date you. Mm -hmm. Just polite consideration. So, anyway, guys who are like this, look, I, I, I'm here to, to, to lecture you on graphical literature, but I'm going to drop a little knowledge about life on your ass right now, grass eaters. Because I know a lot of you are grass eaters. No. Women aren't psychic, and relationships aren't games. Don't expect them to read your damn mind. Don't hang around and be like, I'm all noble and white knighting the shit out of this. 
she has to notice me. No, no, no. Because if you stand around and are really nice, that might mean that you're a nice guy. I'm, and I'm not using the internet sarcasm, nice guy. But if you're doing it because you're hoping to manipulate her perception of you so that she has to go after you so that you don't have to expose yourself to potentially getting shot down so you can maintain some sort of weird superiority in the relationship while putting the pressure on her even though it's because of your lack of communication. That is mind game bullshit. <laughs> and they think you lose the title of nice. Right. Well, then she's no longer going to perceive you as nice. She's going to perceive you as strange and manipulative, which is, in fact, what happened. Mm -hmm. And it's what is kind of in danger of happening here because one of T'Challa's sons is throwing a snit because he was really into this chick, and the chick is into his older brother. Look, it happens, man. Mm -hmm. Find, maybe she has a younger sister. I don't know. Yeah. Why are you ewing? Anyway... So, basically, the story uh, goes down some historical routes here, where Storm talks to her son about Wakanda's involvement in the West. Now, it turns out that what is happening here in this future is partially a result of what happened because civil war just continued to progress aggressively. And we find out that basically Wakanda had to stop their traditional rules of non-involvement, which they've only technically followed at some points in the past. We find out that previous to colonial occupation of Wakanda, that Wakandans did isolate themselves. But once Europeans started kidnapping Africans for the slave trade, that Wakanda became involved um, in a number of ways, including slipping slaves as spies throughout the European empire, so they knew what was going on. But, of course, one of the problems was it wasn't just white colonials coming in and kidnapping slaves. We see here a bunch of African men and very nice European finery who are basically merchants selling other Africans as slaves, using their connections and knowledge of the slave trade internal to Africa to sell them to the West. Which I'm pretty sure happens in the real world, too. Oh, yeah, it did, absolutely. But this is Hudlin recognizing you know, this complexity of history, but he's solving a problem that's problematic. So uh, uh, Don McGregor and Christopher Priest had stuck very strictly to the idea that Wakandans are essentially a xenophobic people, that the Wakandans will not interact strongly with the West. And in fact, there that continues to be true in Reginald Hudlands. I mean, they casually mention that they're withholding the cure for cancer from the West because... They just don't see a reason to trade with them. Which is kind of deep. Right. But at the same time, what Hudlin is tapping into is a black person can read this, especially a kid, and go, holy shit, here's this whole African nation, and they're so advanced. They have stuff the West doesn't even have. And they can see it as this beautiful, amazing thing made by people like them. Which, if you look at the history of science fiction... You know, they showed all these alien worlds with super advanced technology, and it was always filled by white guys. One had, like, a Chinese emperor who was evil. But still, white guys were all the scientists and running things. So I don't think it's, it's not problematic for me for there to be an African utopia um, that provides essentially diversification and representation in that regard. But 
it is a problem for readers because if you are a young African diaspora person, African American, you know, African uh, British or whatever, and you're reading this and you're thinking, these are the perfect people, but they just stood aside and did nothing while our people were enslaved. I mean, this was the point of social conflict interest that many people actually found engaging with Killmonger in the Black Panther movie, that he would want to go out and get justice for black people all over the world. And what we find out here is that we get a retcon of the previous stories because it turns out the Wakandans did do something. They used their influence secretly around the world to technically maintain their isolationism while still work to end slavery. And this is an interesting revelation. And we see time move forward. And they say Wakandans helped in all kinds of ways, from the adoption of rock music through encouraging Mahat Gandhi, through you know encouraging the development of Martin Luther King Jr., and those kinds of things. And then we get a short catch-up on what's happened historically here when eventually a militarized U.S group of superpowers, including the Hulk, Spider-Man, Wolverine, Fantastic Four, Thor, uh, Silver Surfer, attacked Latvia and killed Doom, and then attacked uh, Atlantis and killed Namor. And then they came for Wakanda. And Iron Man figured he was about to conquer Wakanda for the U.S. of A. Except T'Challa took the whole thing down and Tony Stark died during the process. Now they have what they call the Pax Africana, the Peace of Africa. And to some degree, the Wakanda has conquered the world. And this is a bit of a throwback to when Storm and T'Challa were leaving their honeymoon vacation. And Storm asked T'Challa, well, what's going to happen if you can't, you know, achieve peace with these people? And he says, well, then Wakanda will have to conquer the world. And she took it as a joke at the time. But here we get to see in this possible future that it's not a joke, that T'Challa will do it if he has to. If the only way to maintain Wakanda's safety is to take over the world, he'll do it. Now, by this point, we find out that the U.S. was so freaked out by Wakanda's response aggression and attacking that they actually... Uh, excused Luke Cage's felonies and elected him president. Desperate to have somebody in the Oval Office that was friends with T'Challa. And it is Luke Cage's daughter marrying T'Challa's son. Creating a sort of dynasty that unites the U.S. and Wakanda. Which is very much a very Reginald Hudlin thing. He is a black man in America is and a lot of blacks in America are reading these books are seeing this future where their country of America can be directly united with this African utopia. And I think it's a powerful moment. And then we see the frogs who have now teleported back in time to King Solomon and King Solomon is picking them up and putting them away, of course, in the place that later Black Panther will discover them when he needs to. Yep. Now, this doesn't get into the third frog. That will come up outside of Black Panther's Tales much later. So what do you think of Reginald Hudlin's run so far? I'm enjoying it. 
You're enjoying it? Well, that's it for today. However, we are in a couple days going to drop an episode on the history of Image Comics. I think we'll keep that one pretty quick. Um, and next week, I think we'll cover the Black rest of the Black Panther annual that was not written by Reginald Hudlin, uh, as well as pick up on Volume 3. How does that sound? Sounds good. All right. We will see you in a few days. Until then, read more comics. <laughs>